Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Adrienne Petty, Associate Professor of History at the City College of New York. She is the author of Standing Their Ground, Small Farmers in North Carolina Since the Civil War, published by Oxford University Press. Adrienne Petty, welcome to Working History. Thank you for having me. To get us started, can you, in broad brushstrokes, summarize your book, Standing Their Ground, for us? Yes. uh, Standing Their Ground is a history of small farm owners in a section of North Carolina that's known as the Lower Cape Fear or Southeastern North Carolina. And I started off the book with an overarching question in mind, which is, um, why did small farm owners persist in this part of North Carolina as long as they did, Mm -hmm. given the well-studied transformation of Southern agriculture, American agriculture, and agriculture throughout the world. Um, So we knew, historians have long known about the um, increasing consolidation of farmland ownership, mechanization, the turn to um, high-yield uh, seeds and fertilizers and all of the things that have transformed agriculture as we know it, but haven't paid as much attention to why anyone in their right mind would remain in farming given those changes mm-hmm. as, you know, during, throughout the 20th century. So that's what I, I sought to look at by looking at a population of farmers that got their start in the late 19th century and tracing their experience all the way through as long as I could until I thought that their, you know, the story was over. And that story really is, you know, people trying, kind of exhausting every strategy that they could before succumbing to these, um, widespread changes that I was talking about. So mm-hmm. that's that's the basic gist of it, I suppose. Okay. And why did you choose North Carolina specifically versus somewhere else? Because I was so interested in the persistence of farm farming and not so much in the decrease, although the decre- decrease is very real. But because I wanted to look at the persistence, I was first attracted when I was doing this as a dissertation Mm -hmm. to tobacco growing areas. And since North Carolina was the the top tobacco producing state in the country, um, I throughout the 20th century, I focused on North Carolina and those that that section of North Carolina in particular, because there are two counties in North Carolina, Duplin and Bladen, that were part of the book, and um, where in a 1982 study they were shown to have a high number of black farmers. I think it was the highest number in the country at that time. And so I wanted to understand specifically how black farmers had persisted in that area for so long. 
and then more broadly, how small farmers in general had had um, managed to stay as long as they did. So North Carolina just proved to be uh, a good place uh, to study to study what I wanted to look at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, as you as you had mentioned just a, a moment ago, um, your book really bridges and tells a, a very long story from the 19th through the 20th centuries. And um, this, I think, is one of the great strengths of the book in that, um, you know, often the historiography will look at one or the other. Right. And so why if you could just talk a little bit about why you decided to look at this history of small farmers over such a long period of time, um, you know, in terms of their, you know, their strategies to remain, um, what sorts of insights did you, did you get from, you know, from looking at this long chronology? Right. Well, I even, I tried to start even in the antebellum period Mm -hmm. by showing that, you know, we have this, uh, when we talk about agriculture in the United States, Thomas Jefferson is a figure who often comes to mind for mm-hmm. really articulating this agrarian ideal. And so when we think about U.S. history in very broad strokes, we think of the 18th and 19th centuries as the golden age of, you know, farming mm-hmm. and independent proprietorship. Then when we get to the industrial era of the late 19th century, it's as if we just assume that everyone then shifts the focus and their aspirations to other areas. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to show was that slaves and the group that I call landless freemen Mm -hmm. in the book, but, you know, white people who poor white people in the South, Mm -hmm. um, that they were not able to, um, kind of take part in this accumulation of property and independent proprietorship, but that nevertheless, they'd had these kinds of aspirations for that type of a lifestyle mm-hmm. and that they carried those aspirations, them and their descendants into the uh, post civil war period. And so it was important to me to establish one that, you know, people, these were people who'd had these aspirations, even though they hadn't been able to um, to fulfill them, mm-hmm. and also to trace the kind of the persistence of that aspiration throughout the 20th century. Um, but there were also other reasons for my decision to to kind of bridge such a long period of time. One was the importance of understanding the role of um, the emergence of Jim Crow Mm -hmm. to the overall story of Southern agriculture. And Mm -hmm. so I thought it was, didn't make sense to end the, um, this exploration until Jim Crow was over. Mm -hmm. So that also had a lot to do with it. And then there had stuff to do with the um, technological innovations in tobacco production, because the book does focus a lot on on tobacco as a crop, even though there are other crops that I discussed. Mm-hmm. So in terms of tobacco, the impact of mechanization wasn't really, didn't really come to fruition um, for tobacco farmers until the 1970s. So I ended with 1980s, uh, 1982, mm-hmm. basically, 
um, when there is also a shift in federal tobacco policy. So there's, you know, kind of three main themes, Mm -hmm. you know, people's persisting aspirations for land, the impact of um, technological change on farmers, and the impact of government policy. Okay. So um, your your book, interestingly, analyzes black and white small farm owners as a single class, um, again, sort of bucking a lot of trends in, in scholarship that looks at black farmers and white farmers in the South often as two separate groups using race as the primary analytical lens. So um, I'm wondering if you could you know, talk a little bit about um, why you decided to focus on farmers of all backgrounds in the small farming class, and then to talk uh, sort of as a second uh, second part to that question, how that focus then brings new insights into small farmers as a class, if you will, in the U.S. South. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of really good scholarship that focuses on these groups separately mm-hmm. and really establishes the impact that racism and Jim Crow had on um, on black farmers in particular. Um, I guess I was, um, you know, wanted to show that that's only part of the story and that, that the significance of racism and Jim Crow that targeted um, African-Americans um, also constrain the lives of white and um, Indian farmers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this section of southeastern North Carolina is where um, the Lumbee Indians were. So they enter into the story. I They entered into my particular story very late, mm-hmm. and I didn't do as much uh, about the Lumbee as I would have liked to, but I still um, thought it was important to... Um, talk about their presence in this area and to talk about them as a smaller part of this larger um, small farm owning group. Mm -hmm. So that racism and Jim Crow really constrained the lives of all all of these farmers, even though the impact was different for white farmers and for Native American farmers, that um, they still... um, their experience of farming, their experience of you know, with the federal government, with the state government in terms of their ability to persist in farming was constrained in in other ways, ways that were different from African-Americans, but, you know, they were present just the same. Mm-hmm. So just to give you an example of how this racism and exclusion of African-American farmers from the administration of federal Um, farm programs, that's one example, that really also had an impact on the overall class of small farmers because, you know, they weren't able to, um, where they weren't often able to vote and were often excluded from holding positions in, um, you know, in the administration of these local farm programs. And I think that also more broadly, um, they weren't able to make common cause with other small farmers so that when you get to the New Deal period, white farmers are pursuing their interests among a group, a broader group of tobacco farmers who really don't, the larger farmers don't really share exactly the same 
needs and um, interest as the smaller farmers. In Mm -hmm. fact, sometimes these small farm owners were actually, you know, dependent on credit from the large farm owners or they were working for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but because they were all white and because of Jim Crow and, you know, the logic of or the illogic of Jim Crow, they were all kind of placed together. And then the black farmers were kind of left on their own to pursue, um, you know, their interests separately. Mm-hmm. And, but I just wanted to show that even though none of these groups would have ever seen each other as natural allies, that they were or should have maybe, mm-hmm. I don't like to say what they should have done, but that they, they did share common interest. And so that it's incumbent upon us as historians to continually, you know, hammer home this point that they had similar economic interests, similar political interests, even though they didn't see themselves that way. So let's pick up there and uh, with the question of how does this story relate broadly then to the history of labor in working class history in the American South. I'm a historian of the textile industry, and this sounds, you know, in, in some ways, sort of a not entirely similar, but a sort of similar dynamic where you would have white male employees really making common cause, if you will, with their white employers versus seeing economic connections to to black wage earners in the same, you know, in the same area that they were in or in other industries and so forth. So could you talk about farm, you know, your farm workers in that context in terms of labor and working class history? Oh, sure. I'd love to. One of the things that I don't think I, um, well, I I think it's become more important to me. um, And I don't, I'm not necessarily convinced that I did the best job of making the point that small, the small farm owning class was first and they were first and for, foremost laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's best shown through my discussion of, of dual tenure, mm-hmm. um, which I take up in several parts to the book. But that uh, concept of dual tenure was first um, coined, the term was first coined by Sharon Ann Holt in her book, um, Making Freedom Pay, which is about uh, black former slaves in the um, emancipation era. And so she uses it to describe the prevalence during that period and really the the use of dual tenure as a tool for the freed people to gain land by simultaneously working their own land and working someone else's land, either as a laborer or sharecropper or some other tenure arrangement. And so I wanted to underscore the point that farmers who had relatively small amounts of acreage, and I mean, a lot of, I think I defined it, and I don't even remember at this point where I set the threshold or how it changed over time. But, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I set the threshold pretty low, um, maybe but just for the purposes of this discussion, we'll say 60 acres or less, but mm-hmm. a lot of them owned even less than that, maybe 10 acres or less. Mm-hmm. And so um, thinking of that group of people, they were dependent, they were very much dependent on other forms of work. And this has been a, a feature of agriculture, um, even for, you know, people we would describe as gentlemen farmers, people who were lawyers, but they also had a farm. But in contrast to that group, the the farmers I was studying are people who 
did all of the work themselves. And mm-hmm. so they were working off the farm often in, um, you know, on other people's farms while running their own farms. They were, um, during the 20th century, the strategy was often for men to gain industrial work and for women and children to run the farm mm-hmm. and for the men to really pitch in more labor on the weekends and in the evenings and things like that. So to see small farmers as first and foremost, a group that's part of the American working class. And mm-hmm. then the other things in the chapter, I have a chapter called nice work. If you can get it, I argue that during the 1950s, um, the North Carolina governor at the time, Luther Hodges, who was really famous for promote, he was kind of like a Donald Trump figure in the sense that he'd been a business person became governor of North Carolina and his um, real push along with other Southern governors at the time was to bring industry to the state. Mm -hmm. And so he used the widespread existence of small farm owners throughout the state to kind of lure industries. Um, And the promise was that North Carolinians, um, could afford not to be paid as well. Like they could afford to take lower wages mm-hmm, than maybe mm-hmm. some of these employers who were running to the South from North, the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, they could, they could pay these lower wages to them because this was a group that had a source of farm income. And so, you know, really trying to show, I, I was really trying to show the level of exploitation on all levels, but you know, the, exploitation that was going on the local level between these small farmers and, you know, the store owners or the larger landowners for whom they were dependent on credit Mm -hmm. uh, or for work to kind of subsidize their lives, the way that the state government kind of exploited their, the fact that they were straddling these two worlds. And then, you know, that even moves on to the federal level where, um, the federal government wasn't really taking into account the experience of these type of farmers who were very vulnerable, but also very committed to maintaining this kind of um, farm livelihood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a, a little bit more in detail about a couple of things that you had had mentioned um, at the at the beginning of our conversation. Um, and, and delve into your book a, a bit more. Um, could you give us a sense of what farming was like um, for these small Southern farmers in the, you know, in the decades that you cover and and how it evolved? Um, you know, for example, you had mentioned that there was a lot of mechanization and um, eventually, um, you know, that that sort of undermined strategies of, of um, staying on the land. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could just sort of give us a sense of, you know, what sort of the day to day was like for these you know, for these small Southern farmers, number one, and then number two, what were their strategies over time as they, you know, as they fought to hold on to their land? That's a great question. And it's also a challenging question sometimes for me, because it's so um, hard to kind of distill these experiences and, and, you know, stuff that varied even from year to year, let Mm -hmm. alone decade Mm -hmm. to decade. But I guess I would start by saying, um, calling attention to the way that many of these farmers got their start in the first place. Mm -hmm. Southeastern North Carolina is best known in the historical literature as a rice producing area. Mm -hmm. And um, during the antebellum period, it was 
you know, really characterized by large planters who um, used the work, the labor of um, slaves to produce rice. And, you know, cotton was also grown in that area, too. And then another significant thing going on in the countryside, this is kind of the the countryside surrounding uh, Wilmington, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Another um, significant industry was um, turpentine and mm-hmm. naval stores. So during the Civil War, um, that, of course, everything was thrown into kind of confusion and disarray. By the end of the Civil War, um, there's a little bit more, well, probably a few decades more of um, turpentine production that goes on in southeastern North Carolina. But the naval stores industry, the production of turpentine and tar and pitch, these, uh, this production moves or migrates uh, south and further west to Georgia, to Alabama, to um, Florida, to other states. And at once, you know, manufacturers have really tapped these um, forests to death and the Mm -hmm. pines are no longer producing. Mm -hmm. That opens up, that's one of the things that opens up an opportunity for these small farmers to gain land. it's the land is sold pretty cheap because it's covered in, you know, forest. And, and so one of the first things that you find a lot of these families doing is just spending their days uh, working for other people as sharecroppers, but spending their nights and weekends trying to clear these forests. So mm-hmm. that's one of the mm-hmm. earliest um, parts of their experience that you see. And then once, um, you know, once they start get to the point where they have a productive farm, a lot of their energy is spent on the production of cash crops uh, like uh, tobacco and cotton, which are extremely labor intensive. Tobacco is mm-hmm. known as the 13 month crop mm-hmm. because it's um, the the labor is so intense. The um, crop year starts with, you know, it, it never really ends mm-hmm. because during the winter, um farmers are reliant on those same forests to provide them with wood that they'll later use in the curing of the tobacco. So they they engage in, you know, collecting wood that they will use later in the summer to cure the tobacco. Then they're clearing the field, breaking the land, planting the seeds, transplanting seedlings to the fields. Um, it's kind of a never-ending cycle, um, weeding and hoeing throughout the um, growing season, mm-hmm. um, then beginning to do what they call priming the tobacco or pulling pulling the leaves from the stalk as they ripen on the stalk and then curing them. And so and then taking them to market, sorting the leaves, selling them. You know, so it, it's mm-hmm. a long mm-hmm. kind of I hope I'm giving <laughs> a good picture of this, but it's a long process. Right, right. It's involved in tobacco farming and very labor intensive. And so the when you think about the amount of labor that men, women, and children were devoting just to this crop, and then many of them were often also raising cotton, raising um, sweet potatoes were prevalent because people would use their same curing barns to store their sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. um, and other vegetables that they used for home use and for sale. 
um, that their lives really were characterized by kind of unrelenting work. My other question then would be, um, you know, given this, you know, the fact that this was such a labor intensive um, crop to grow um, and, you know, really the amount of time that it took to, you know, just to bring the crop to market. um, What, you know, what were the ways um, that these farmers fought to hold on to their land? I mean, it seems that if you're putting that much work into a crop that you're going to you know, do everything you can to hang on to your land, um, even when change is coming and when it becomes more and more difficult to do that. So can you talk a little bit about those strategies um, that the farmers use to to hang on to their land and to continue growing this, you know, this crop? Right. So over, I would I'd try to roughly divide it by decades or time periods mm-hmm. on one of the earliest um you know, earliest examples of, of resistance and fighting to hold on to their land. What happened during the late 19th and early 20th century with their uh, fight to keep the state government from imposing um, a requirement that farmers um, fence in their livestock. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, throughout, um, throughout the history of agriculture, um, Farmers have relied on the ability to um, let their livestock graze on the open range mm-hmm. as a way to, you know, provide sustenance for their families, to provide fiber for their families, whatever, you know, they were doing. In the case of the farmers that that I study, it was very common to uh, for them to own at least a couple pigs or cows. And they were really reliant on this ability to have those pigs and cows gain their food um, from on the open range, this mm-hmm. common land. You know, the farmers didn't fence in their livestock, but they were allowed to roam mm-hmm. free. And this, of course, you know, as um, the United States becomes more, much more of a capitalist nation, or at least capitalism, like the logic of capitalism kind of takes over the lives of um, Americans during the late 19th century, um, there's increasing call, and, and the livestock industry takes off, there's increasing calls to, uh, to close the range. Mm-hmm. Um, and so small farmers were instrumental in, in fighting against those kinds of changes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then when you move into the period of the New Deal um, with the enactment of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Um, Tobacco farmers were, now in this case, tobacco compared to other crops was a small acreage crop to begin with. So even the largest farmers weren't, you know, their, their sizes, several hundred acres, paled in comparison to, say, the farmers of the Midwest or the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. So they were effective. This was a a case where the fact that tobacco was such a, um, you know, kind of small farm crop, the tobacco farmers were effective in protecting protecting themselves from, you know, or having the, the program structured in a way that took into account their smaller size. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the smallest of the small farmers, you know, the smallest farmers in this overwhelmingly kind of 
um, you know, by comparison, small scale crop uh, didn't fare as well, but they did try as well as they could to um, hold on. And let me give you an example. Um, so the, the, the men and women I discuss in this book had responded to the call of the North Carolina government, the state government during the 1920s to live at home, which meant live at home and board in the same place was the slogan. And what that meant was, you know, getting farmers to grow more of their own food, Mm -hmm. to keep cows and pigs, all of those kinds of things, because North Carolina was concerned that um, farmers weren't growing enough of the food they were eating also, North Carolinians overall were buying a lot of their food from outside of the state. So there was this great push for that. And small farmers argued, you know, during the 1920s, we responded to this call. We increased our production of vegetables for home use, of fruit trees. We planted pecan trees. They did all of the things that the agricultural extension agents and home demonstration agents were really promoting. Then with the um, imposition of the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 33, which um, urged farmers to, well, which cut their production, cut their acreage, the amount of the crop that they could grow in order to raise prices, um, they thought thought that that wasn't fair because they'd already um, cut their acreage voluntarily and replaced it with gardens. Mm -hmm. And so that was another part of their kind of resistance and self-advocacy during that period. And then I would argue that even with, um, you know, using government policies to their own advantage or using them in unintended ways, and I I would say that um, some of the loan programs and the particularly the um, GI Bill of mm-hmm. 1944, that they used the GI Bill to the extent that they could um, to, you know, fortify their presence on the land to kind of uh, hold on to, to the land rather than the way that we typically think of the GI Bill is kind of an engine for upward mobility and pursuit of the American dream of, you know, a suburban home and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the way that these farmers used it. Um, they used it, and some of the ways that they used it were because they did, had no other choice. So one of the most popular things throughout the South was for returning GIs to take advantage of the farm training programs mm-hmm. or the farm loan programs. Um, they were not as likely, although there are a lot of exceptions, but they're not as likely to take advantage of what we usually think of, which is the college education and, and um, home ownership. Mm-hmm. Those are just some of the examples that I try to trace of mm-hmm. these farmers struggling to hold on to their land. So given that the number of farm owners eventually declined precipitously, um, why did you choose the title of Standing Their Ground for your book? That returns to the theme of persistence that uh, was always a a big feature of the book for me. And and by persistence, I don't want to suggest that I'm one of those people who thinks nothing ever changes because, Mm -hmm. you know, as what I've been telling you is that there was tremendous change. It it 
reveals the um, agricultural South to be a much more dynamic place than we've given credit for. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, I wanted to call attention to the, um, the extent to which the experience of being a worker in the Southern countryside, the experience of being a sharecropper, a tenant farmer, a farm laborer, um, kind of bred this, continually reproduced this aspiration to own land. Mm -hmm. And so standing their ground was, even though you have this tremendous decline in the number of farmers over the course of the period I'm studying, I wanted to call attention to the kind of almost contradictory fact that throughout that period, you constantly had farmers entering farming for the first time. And so you know, the GI Bill was one example of that. It wasn't a huge number, but you saw uh, so many applications of people trying to become farmers for the first time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a number of other periods that, that uh, kind of you see that throughout the book. So that's why. So that was one reason for standing their ground as a title to highlight that persistence. It's also to highlight the um, theme of resistance. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the book came out, stand your ground laws. They were mm -hmm. in the news. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm using standing their ground in a very different sense. Mm -hmm. um, not so much about self-defense and the right to use violence against people, uh, but to really in a more affirmative way that people were standing up for, you know, the fruits of their labor. Just a theme also of kind of a resistance to capitalism, but at the same time, these were people who were embracing aspects of capitalism. So mm -hmm. it's kind of contradictory, but, um, you know, at the same time that they were pursuing ownership of land, they were doing it in part to resist uh, overall reliance on wage labor as a way of life and in industrial capitalism. So I hope I've explained that well enough, but that's, that's the sense in which I was using standing their ground. So before we wrap up, can you talk a little bit about Breaking New Ground, um, the oral history project that you directed with historian Mark Schultz? Oh, yes. Um, so Breaking New Ground, Mark and I met several decades ago now at the Newberry Library Rural History Seminar in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, we were both doing similar work. Um, he was working in Georgia. I was working in North Carolina doing collecting interviews with um, with farm owners. Uh, and we decided that it would be a great idea to try to pool our efforts and to also engage students in doing oral histories with um, black farm owners in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, so in black farm owners, the decision to do that was to focus on that group in particular was that there had, if you look in the, um, you know, the various oral history collections, the Southern oral history uh, collection at UNC Chapel Hill, mm -hmm. Baylor, all of the various um, collections that attempted to, um, collect histories of farm life, African-American farm owners were one of the groups that was most absent. There's a lot on sharecroppers, a lot of um, white independent farmers, 
not as many black ones. So that's mm-hmm. why we made the decision to do that. Mm-hmm. So we uh, received a grant from the NEH to, um, and we used it to train two cohorts of students, undergraduates and grad students from um, historically black colleges and universities and from uh, some of the southern uh, universities with great oral history programs like UNC and Baylor. And um, we had some from University of Southern Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we trained them and they, they went out throughout the South and really did a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of um, collecting these histories with people who had been farmers themselves or people who had grown up on farms mm-hmm. or people, we even had people who were the descendants of um, African-American farm owners and, you know, had were able to tap into great um, family stories about mm-hmm. their grandparents or great-grandparents' acquisition of land. So now Mark and I are using these, uh, we collected, we meaning Mark, the students and I mm-hmm. collected um, more than 300 interviews and um, we're now used using them and drawing upon archival research that we've done since this research to write a book that explores the history of black farm owners. Um, and some of the things that we found are similar to some of the things that I've, uh, I found in standing their ground mm-hmm. and my experience writing standing their ground very much shaped a lot of the questions that I had about this particular group of farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's just more specifically um, instances of the impact that um, that racism had on these farmers. There's also, though, um, the same um, same kind of emphasis on farmers trying to capture this experience for the first time, even mm-hmm. though there's we're in the midst of it was a devastating decline in the number of of black farmers. But I think the Pickford versus Glickman case, the class action suit against the USDA by African-American farmers, shows uh, that's kind of evidence of the persistence of of, of black farmers. Um, Because these were people, many of them, um, after the civil rights movement, who got into farming for the first time, thinking that this would be their moment, that this would be a point where the barriers of racism and discrimination and Jim Crow would be out of their way and that they would be able to pursue this livelihood. And yet just the reverse happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, it's a really important story and I'm, I'm really excited, you know, to be working with Mark on telling it. And it really, it's, it's been more fruitful having both of us work on it at the same time because Mm -hmm. we're, we have slightly different interpretations. We have different takes on this history. Um, he's much more um, tends to see this as a story of people who left farming for better opportunities, that the decline had more to do with um, increasing opportunities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we kind of have found a way to meet somewhere in the middle of those two different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically what big, uh, breaking new ground is about. Great. And we'll definitely look forward to, to that wrapping up and maybe you both can come back and talk to us again when it does. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so Adrian Petty, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Working History. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Adrian Petty, Associate Professor of History at the City College of New York. She is the author of Standing Their Ground, Small Farmers in North Carolina Since the Civil War, published by Oxford University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.